well. I've got this backwards on the camera and it's too late to turn around. So hopefully that'll do. So Genesis 3, 1 Samuel 17, Matthew 4. Three stories of ultimate, utter, overwhelming victory. And from this, what I want you to remember today, I want to remember a lot, but the main thing is that Lent is the season of victory. But the victory is not one the world knows how to see. The victory is not one in which you are already everything you're supposed to be. The victory is one in which the Holy Spirit of God has come down to your evil self and convinced you to admit that you're not. And to ask the true God for help. That's called repentance. And it's an utter victory over the devil. So much so that every time somebody for the first time believes on Jesus, the angels sing, we know. Heaven rejoices. Victory. Now, right now, in the United States, for people who call themselves Christians, they're torn. Because they have come to believe that victory for the United States the way they would like the United States to be is the same thing as victory with Jesus. And Jesus is asking us all this year to stop it, to cut it out, to stop thinking this global hegemony will last longer than any of the other ones, to stop believing that it's really a good thing to build an empire on slavery. Oh, we stopped that, but now we'll just kill babies instead. If and when the Lord decides to send a pox, a true pox upon America, a pandemic, a famine, a war on these shores, we will have deserved it well. I mentioned the nonsense with the public schooling system, teaching systemic critical race theory, a racist theory. In the name of anti-racism, they will go and teach a new racism so that some who don't have power can get it by taking it from others. They will call this peace. It is hate. And it's the way the devil has always fought. But forget that too. Of all the children that are going to be taught this, that are being shamed, so that if you are a nerd and a white male, the only way you can be virtuous and not evil is to go trans. Well, one-third of their schoolmates aren't even at school, not because they're at home learning, but because we killed them before they got out of the womb. So again, I say, America, we have much to repent of. But Christians in America, Christians haven't wanted these things. We've just believed somehow by fighting with the sword, we could make it happen. What I am suggesting to you again and again is that what you really must pray for is a bubble in the midst of the madness. You want to pray for your king knowing he's going to be an evil man. 
Not because you hope he'll actually be a good man. You must know he will be an evil man and pray that his evil is bound in by God. So that your community, however you want to define that, your family, your congregation, your county, it's a bit big, but your corner for sure, so that you there can live according to your conscience. Because the king far away is only as strong as his story. And again, I challenge you Christians, start detaching yourself from the story. Stop believing that your future rests with the future of the United States. Believe that the United States could fall and you will still have a great life. Whether it's here with all the suffering, learning how to submit to the word of God or knowing what you know. They take you out, you're just going to come back in a better world with a better body. So why the fear, America? Why the fear, Christians? Lent is a season of victory, wherein we who know what grace is, which is that God has named us his own according to his prerogative for his glory to bring us into belief in him, knowing that and seeing that we've been called, gathered, and begun to be enlightened. All the more do we put everything we have into repenting one more time. We know it's never enough. We know that the flesh is always with us. It's a liar from the beginning with its father, the devil. And even though I'm inhabited by the Holy Spirit and regenerate to a new life, there's a war inside of me. The devil doesn't have to come and tempt me. I do that. And so Lent comes along and it says, so get in the dirt. Ash your head. Beat your breast and say, forgive me, Lord, for hidden sins. Lord, give not to my countrymen what we deserve, but give them reformation instead. Teach them how to see. Wake them up. Show them what's happening to their bodies and their families and cause them to ask questions until they find that a big part of it is they have no God. Victory, Christians. Victory. Today you're going to have the Lord's Supper. You're, you're going to feast on Jesus. You're going to imbibe the flesh and blood which has already come out of the tomb and ascended to the highest heights. Now again, I'm not going to pretend to tell you what kind of great miraculous mystery he invokes from his highest heaven to put that incarnate God body into the bread and wine, to put it into your mouth, to join with you. But I'm going to tell you, it goes in your mouth. And you chew him as bread and you swallow him as wine, and he fuses with you as food, so that you will have no doubt that the victory is yours. So you can start repenting, not like the pagans do, wagging their heads, why can't I get better? Oh, it's so hard. Stop it. So you can just get cold with yourself a little bit and acknowledge that your life's not your own. I'll tell you, it's much easier to stop behaving a certain way when you believe you don't have a choice. So you start telling yourself you don't have a choice because you belong to Jesus. You're his bondservant now. And he purchased you. That's the victory. That's the humility the world doesn't want. It's better to be a slave of a righteous, good king who will live forever than to be a free man on this rock. Oh, I haven't even touched the text, for pity's sakes. We're going to start with David. Um, David is a man after God's own heart. When you hear that, it should make every one of you say, I want to be like that man. It should. You want to be a person after God's own heart. 
Now, there are women after God's own heart, too, if you want to specifically zoom in on just the ladies. Hannah, we just did that, right? Hannah, oh my. But David is the result of Hannah's prayer. The king she's been asking for, sort of, that the God of Sabaoth, the God of war, would send an answer to make their enemies leave them alone. And here he is, this ruddy, handsome adolescent. Kind of the best way to, to get those words. Although ruddy, I don't like that word ruddy. It means like fresh or raw. And when it says he was handsome, that means there were no scars on his face. This guy hadn't been in any fights yet. And so when this hardened warrior sees this child, you can understand why he scoffs. As a Navy SEAL going up against some snot-nosed kid who's 12, like with a stick. It's not even close. You also definitely see the bloodlust and hatred of man's normal behavior in the world. Again, I suggest to you that what has been good about America has largely been the Judeo-Christian belief, ah, the Judeo-Christian belief in certain types of ethics, which we have jettisoned intentionally over the last 50 or 60 years, removing them from our infrastructures. But those ideas, virtue as it were, have been much of what made America great. David is a person who exhibits these kinds of virtues. That is, he is not a bloodlusty man. He is not one who simply wants to destroy, like Goliath. But he is not one who is unaware of the way that the world is. That is, as a shepherd, and he tells this to King Saul, I've had to fight wolves. I've had to fight lions. This is a world of death and decay. This is a world where evil men do evil things. And again, America, you've lived with the benefit of a belief system that said things are evil, don't do them, but you're watching before your eyes, everyone say they're not evil, let's do them. So how long until people just begin taking what they want and killing each other? I can't prophesy that. I've got no idea on that. But what I can tell you is this, to sit upon this story, as I think many will, and look down upon the end particularly where David says, I'll feed your body to the ravens and I'll cut off your head as he does, lifting it high in his giant head. He takes it back to Jerusalem and puts it on a wall. Shall we look down our nose at him for this? Or shall we realize that's the real way the world is without Jesus? And when you have to fight an enemy, you have to fight an enemy. Pray for a world with fewer enemies, I suppose. But wrestling with this idea that we cannot escape the brutality of the world, to think we've changed, to think the modern world has no brutality, is to walk around with blinders on. You're just not watching. And then again, to then engage that brutality, not pretending it's not there, not thinking it won't be there, but armed with the same kind of truth that David was armed with. David's confession here is one of two reasons why I think you should believe he is a man after God's own heart. The other one is what he says to the prophet Nathan after he's confronted for what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah and all of that. Let's just say adultery, murder, and he's probably not a Christian at this point. And Nathan comes to him and says, you're not a Christian at this point, sir. And he says, dear God, save me. He falls on his face and he begs for mercy. And God does. 
That's number one, what it means to be a, a man after God's own heart. But then what does that mean when you're not repenting for something you actually did? <laughs> it means that you're facing the world attacking you, tempting you to doubt with the truth that you cannot fall away in Christ. So when he says to Goliath, you think you got all that stuff? I don't have scars on my face. I can't carry your sword. It's too big. So what? I have a real God with me. So you got all this wooden stone back there you pray to and you sacrifice stuff to. That's fine. But Israel's actually got a God and his promises are such that you can't beat me. Now, David could say that twofold. As an Israelite, it was true. In the name of Saul, it was true. And remember, he's anointed by God as the king already. He can't die. He can't die until he becomes king of Israel. I mean, talk about putting your faith where the, where the words are. Huh? That's exactly what he does. Now, you do not have the promise that you can't die in that way. But you do have the promise that you can't die. You'll just experience bodily death and experience bodily resurrection, right? With your immortality. But this is where his confession is one you could just grab right on. The world comes at you with all manner of things. Metal, stone, wood, time. But you go at it in the name of Jesus Christ. Claimed. Owned. In victory. And as you go, you may not see giants collapse in your way. You may never know the victories you have. In fact, if God is gentle and good to you, he'll keep you from such things. He'll give you a quiet and peaceable life. Then again, the life of a martyr is one the ancients would pray for. So don't forget that either. Ah, I want to say more, but I want to move us on as well this morning. David is the picture though, right? He's the picture of the perfect man believing in the promises of God, facing down the great enemy. That type is going to go both backward and forward, Genesis and up to Jesus in chapter 4 of Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew 4 first, even though I, I like finishing with Christ, but, but I think that the Genesis text is just too complex, so um, I don't want to get lost in it. So Matthew chapter 4, what I want you to import right away is that you have this picture of a, an unsung hero who no one knows or really thinks can do what he's doing and a great and vicious enemy who can't possibly be defeated. And you have the enemy being defeated. And in both cases, by a faithful trust in what God has said. Now, Jesus will go and say different things than David says. I think there's a reason for that. I'll try to show you as we go. I mean, this, this tempting slash tempering that he has happen is his own little pickle. It really is. And it's made all the worse by something James says. Now, I'm not one of those who doesn't like James. I love James. I think we should spend lots of time in James. I don't think James teaches that Roman Catholic justification theory is right. Um, and that's why Luther is kind of known for not liking James is because of the abuses that were being used with James at that time. But James in general is a marvelous early teaching of what Christian life looked like in Judea. It's really worth listening to, especially as it talks about the danger of the tongue, yeah, and how lies and falsehoods can just destroy a group of people. But James says something about temptation late in his writing that kind of comes out of left field so far as biblical theology goes. Because like up to this point in the Bible, the word temptation is used of God. That is to say, God goes and he tempts Abraham. 
Now, to keep you from being bothered by this, they usually bury it in the translation. So they just translate it as tests Abraham, and then they'll have it be tempting when it's something bad that happens to someone who falls. But then here's Jesus, who is being tempted without sin. Oh, goodness, and God tempts no one. What's going on? And it becomes this pickle, right? It becomes a, what is even happening? So to try to break through the white noise of the various ways this word can work, the best way to do it in English is the word tempering. You're not tested by God. You're not even tempted by the devil. You are tempered by God through your own temptations. Yeah? He comes and he says, in the midst of this right or wrong reality, because you're a Christian, whether you choose right or wrong, I'm going to show you what it was. And in this, you will emerge from it stronger, wiser, more mature, bearing more fruit. Like one does with any piece of metal that they would make into a weapon or a shield, right? They temper it. They put it in the fire. They hit it a bunch of times. They put it in the water over and over. And if you're that piece of metal, I can't imagine it feels great. Huh? I mean, you're getting smashed, you're getting heat, you're getting frozen, right? And so yet what emerges is the truest, purest steel. What emerges is what should be. Yeah? So God tempers everything all the time. He tempers you particularly, Christian, to bring about fruit. He tempers the unbeliever to, if they will not repent, hold the unbeliever in his path. And in that way, bind him for his own destruction. And ultimately, I would say, uh, really what we're seeing today in Matthew chapter 4 is the tempering of the devil. Because the devil comes to ask these questions of Jesus, but what Jesus says every time back to the devil has more than one way that it can be understood. And in it, you can see it in two stories. One story is, here's the man who could possibly fall. Here is the second Adam, who if the devil beats him, therefore it's all over because he's also God. Uh, we're done. We're in the devil's kingdom now. So Jesus answers in every case, come off as, as a man, I can't do what you suggest. And in this way, he endures the tempering as a man, actively, obediently, in your place, by the way. This action that he does is not meaningless. It's what you wouldn't have done and what you don't do by yourself. But there's another edge to all of it going on. He's not only saying, as a man, I can't do these things because of these written words. Every single one of them, you can take those written words and he's saying, as God, devil, you shouldn't have said what you just said because of this. You should be listening to me. I'm going to show you that as we go through that then. Let's see, I feel like I had one more piece I wanted to put in there. We'll find it as we go. So when the tempter comes to him first, this is verse 3. Notice how he uses the word if. He'll do this all three times. If is a word of doubt. It's meant to make you question. He doesn't quite say if to Eve, to woman. In Genesis 3, he says, did God say? Same kind of idea, though. But he comes, if you are the Son of God, like, let me test you. Let me temper you. Let me sound you out, Jesus, and see how you really do. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. He is 
certainly, I think, had water during this time. Uh, for the skeptics who still exist on science from 150 years ago on the internet as if it were new, it's been shown man can live 47 to 49 days without food. It's been done in the modern age. It's not a miracle necessarily, but it was serious business to do without doctor supervision in the desert. Yeah, uh, So that's where he is, uh, and he's hungry, and the devil says, well, you're the son of God. Make some food. Huh? Now, we can get into the intricacies of what the devil's trick was, but instead I want to show you Jesus' answer, and it's both man and divine answer, okay? So he says to him, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So for myself, Jesus the man who's hungry, I know that I shall not live by bread but that the real source of my life is the word of God, creating, sustaining all these things, who he actually is, right? But that's where it's kind of, that's the secondary meaning here. It wasn't like he could fall. What he's doing is chiding Satan. He says, man, who you think you run, who you're killing, he doesn't live only by the life of this age, by the food. So he's starving, dying, getting old, going in the grave, but he's going to live by the word that comes from the mouth of God, which you, devil, are here not believing. You're here to sound me out. You're here to test me because you don't think that even now I know what I'm doing. Hmm? That's number one. So the devil takes him to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. If, there's the if, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Skydive, right? Skydive off a mountain. I mean, people do that these days. Uh, why? He goes to Scripture. Don't think the devil won't quote the Bible. He will. He doesn't do it very well, though. Uh, he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Because it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So again, since you're able to do whatever you want, since it's prophesied, Jesus, that no harm shall befall your body, that God does not design for you, you're not even going to hurt your toe, huh? jump off. Huh? Show me that you can live forever. Do a David, actually, right? This is kind of a David. Show me that you can't die. Now, nuance here. Devil quotes the Bible, but he doesn't know the context. If you were paying attention to the gradual this morning, you had this in its context, and you'll note the context of the angels lifting him up lest he bear his foot against a stone is so that he might tread upon the lion and the serpent. Like the context is how to fight the devil. <laughs> the devil quotes a verse about himself out of context and doesn't know what's going on. And Jesus says back to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't sound out. Don't try to temper God. Me, Jesus as a man, I should not try to test God's promises by hurling myself off the temple. Ah, that's the secondary meaning. Devil, you're here to temper me, to test me, to see if I can do it. You should not be testing the Lord your God, me. Yeah? Last one puts it all to bed. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. In one moment, I, I don't know what that means. But he says to him, all of this I will give to you because he is actually the Lord of it. If you will, there's the if, if you will fall down and worship me. Remember, worship, the word means to put your face in the dirt. So here, Jesus, before saying anything else, says, be gone, Satan. Now, I think we should slow down on that one. That's not a quote. 
it's what's called an imperative or a command. Like, I, Jesus, get to tell you, Satan, what to do. Here, let me quote scripture to tell you why. <laughs> uh, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, again, I, Jesus, will not do as you ask, because I will only worship my Father who is in heaven as a man, actively obedient on behalf of all sinners everywhere. That's true. But also, you devil should only be worshiping the Lord your God, who is me. And him only shall you serve, so be gone. And the devil left him. Huh? So see how he claims the authority. Devil, I'm God. I can tell you to leave. Leave. The devil leaves. Angels come and minister to him. Now maybe that rings a bell for you with a text, I believe, uh, from James again, where he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't expect you to get into a verbal shouting match with him in the desert anytime soon. But I do expect you to have to listen to a lot of lies. You listen to lies all the time. And you do need to resist the lies. And the path to that is to know, first, you are victorious in Jesus. And what they're trying to make you afraid of is nothing to fear. And then second, because you're not so stable on your own, you do need to be in the Bible. Like actively, daily, in some way. Audibly, doesn't matter. You need it. Psalms, especially. right? They're your prayers. And the Proverbs, if you want to be wise, I'm telling you, one a day will help a lot. Victory. The devil flees. James says, resist the devil and he will flee. Lent, repentance, coming together. What are we doing? We're as a group resisting the devil. That's what we're doing. And together again, this morning, we're going to bind with the body and blood of Jesus so that as we go out into our lives, we will drip grace in Christ everywhere that we go. And the devil will flee until at an opportune time, the lie comes back when again, you must not trust all people. You must not trust every man and woman. You must be in the word so your mind is kept safe. And then you must learn to speak to others with this word. Now, as I see our musician moving to the piano, I worry about the time, but we still have a little Genesis 3 to give you this morning. There is enough in this chapter. Again, I could speak for six weeks on this chapter. There's so much here. And the rabbis, I think, would agree with me. Uh, every verse opens up a whole book's worth of stuff. The things I want to zoom in on this morning for you, again, are the victory pieces, though. We'll kind of go... Uh, I want to go in reverse, but we won't. We're going to dive right in the middle of the reading, which is where, verse 14, the Lord God speaks to the serpent. Yeah. Uh, without, without going too far into what is the serpent, but now I'm going to. I'm sorry, the serpent. I have to say this because, really, there's a guy uh, named Penn Jillette. You ever heard of Penn Jillette? He's a, he's a famous comedian, Penn and Teller. They were big in Vegas for a while. He's got a video on YouTube where he... He's shouting about the stupidity of believing in talking snakes. Talking snakes? Talking snakes? So I feel like I need to say something. But the thing is, what we're going to learn about right here is the description of such a cataclysmic change in the creation itself that you cannot, with a fallen human brain, imagine what it was like beforehand where there were so-called so talking snakes. You cannot picture it. 
You don't even know what a life without death and decay looks like. You think when the crops come and go, they die. They don't. But they look like they do because it's all wrong now. So if you're going to complain about what happened before the fall or before the flood, for that matter, I'm going to start ignoring you because you're basically making stuff up. Now, there is an answer, I think, to the talking snakes, maybe more than one. I'll share it with you the way I imagine it because it really does help me. But I also want to make sure that this is understood to be just my opinion, the way I hear it. But what I know is this, both with this text and throughout the ancient world, there are traditions of wise, old, non-human beings with such powerful ability to craft riddles and deceptions that you should never talk to them. And in the Far East, they're called dragons. Dragons, they're big flying snakes with little legs. And they talk and they deceive. So when I see this, the serpent coming to them, I see a dragon made of light. Because I also know that Lucifer, the dark one, the evil one, Satan, whatever you want to call him, when God said, let there be light, he was part of that. And bringing that light forth, he is in this creation. So that when this creation is wrapped up and fired, that's made for him. That's where he is going to go. But initially, he was beautiful. When did he fall? When did he decide to make all this happen? If you read Milton's Paradise Lost, there's a whole fight, and then he comes to do Adam and Eve like as a get-you-back-to-God kind of thing. I'll suggest to you how I think of it's a little different. I imagine this is it. Creation's been made. Everything's set to play. He's kind of watching. He's the light bringer. Little mud-mad Adam gets put in charge of everything. That doesn't seem fair. I'm the light bringer. I'm way greater than he is. But you know what? If he bows the knee to me, hey, we're good to go. Hey, lady, let's talk. I think that's what happened. And I don't think it's that tough either, really, right? All of that is me trying to answer the atheist and the skeptic and whatnot. But I know you hear these things out there too, right? We kind of have to learn to push them aside. What I wanted to get to is not something about the devil. I don't want to talk about the devil for eons on end. Goodness. Uh, I want to talk about what was said to him. Mm. Because you've done this, verse 14, cursed are you above all livestock. Here that is meaning all animals. The demons are out of salvation. They're cursed above all animals and livestock. Livestock, they're getting saved. Maybe not to a personality, but as a whole, the creation's coming through with Jesus. So he's cursed above that. On his belly he shall go, and dust he shall eat all the days of his life. Now, you can understand that as meaning snakes go on the ground. It's true. Um, I think it's more about the way the ancient world saw things, particularly the Hebrews, who the first thing said in the previous two chapters would define how they understand everything else that comes afterward. And actually, what comes next at the very end, verse 19, what's he say to Adam? You are dust. You are dust. So when it says, you shall eat the dust all the days of your life, I don't think it's talking about snakes. I think it's talking about all the devil has left is to try to take down mankind with him. He shall eat the dust. He will bring man down to death, and the ones who go down to death without Christ, that's his victory. All the days of his life. But it's not a victory. Verse 15. This is called the proto-yoyangelion, the, the proto-gospel, the first gospels, the first place in the Bible we see a promise from God that is undeserved. Now, he's speaking to the devil, and that part's quite deserved, but he builds into it something for us that's undeserved and very good news. So again, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, that's hatred, 
between you and the woman, specifically between your offspring, your seed, that is the lies and the demons that he sends out into the world, and her seed, singular. Uh, Paul's very clear about that in Galatians. Uh, This is Jesus, right? That from woman would come a man who then would bruise or crush the devil's head, and he, the devil, would crush or bruise his heel. It's clouded in shadow. We could spend a lot of time trying to pull that apart. I mean, it's just fun to see how his heels have a nail going through it on the crucifix, right? I mean, there it is. He's bruised his heel. And you can know that in that moment, you got a snakehead that stuck itself up and had the nail go through his face and nail him to the cross too, in Jesus, right? So that's great. But we're not going to go that deep right now. What I want you to go to is, is go directly from scene. God curses the devil by saving mankind. We're in salvation now. Huh? And then, what is the response that Adam and woman have after this? Because we have all this stuff about how having kids is going to not be fun anymore like it used to be. And about how having a husband is going to mean conflict in the household until you figure out what headship is. And even then, he still might be a jerk. And then, that's because he's going out every day and facing a world that completely is destroying him. There's thorns and thistles everywhere, and all he wants is respect, but he doesn't get none anywhere. And that's also said what you're going to do. And the end of all of this will be that you're going to sweat a lot, you'll probably smell after that, and then you're going to die. It would be easy to be mad at God about this, I think. But what we're told is that the man called his wife's name Eve. Feels kind of like a hard turn, right? What? He he named his wife Eve. So again, remember we must take what's come before us in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2. God has made Adam, man, he set him in the garden, and he wants him to caretake the garden. Part of this is to be the face of God, so he will speak to the creation. And so all the animals are being brought to him, and he's naming them, and he's searching among them for a a suitable helper, a companion. Uh, And I love the irony in all this. I mean, after the giraffe and then maybe the zebra, he's like, okay, God, this is funny. Can I have one that looks like me, right, a little bit? Uh, Well, that's, that's again what happens, right? So God puts Adam to sleep. He forms woman from Adam's side. And then he does, Adam does the same thing he's been doing to everything else. He names her. And she has a name. We just don't think of it as a name because we use it as a normal word. The name is woman. He names her woman. Now his name is not man. He is Adam, right? Adam is a man. So Adam, his name, which also means dust or dirt or earth, Adam is an ish, a male. And when he sees one who is not Adam, but is also ish, but is female, he calls her Isha, woman, or girl, girl guy. <laughs> it's pretty primitive, girl guy. You're not a guy, and I like you. That's what it is. Yeah? So, and that's, that's what happens there. But now, after all of this catastrophe, the roses are growing thorns. The lions are starting to eat, eat like little lambs and stuff where they weren't doing that before. And God says, from her will come one. He gives her a new name. He calls her Eve. And that is a Hebrew form of the word life. Life. Because he knew these promises were true. He knew that even the fall is a victory for man. Not that we should do it on purpose, but that afterwards our God is so great that he's leading us to a higher place than we were 
in the first place. And then you also see how the Lord God, verse 21, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That means he killed animals in front of them. He put blood upon them. He covered their shame with atonement. And I believe again, although I can't force you to believe this one, but I believe from this point on, this is where sacrificial atonement was made in the Old Testament up to Moses, where you get all the Levitical stuff. But why does Noah know about clean and unclean animals? It's because of this. It's because of this. So that the worship which points forward to the blood of the cross is established right away in shadow. Can they see it? Do they, knew, do they know he has to be crucified? They leave that for another time. What they know is that they haven't lost, but they have a long journey. And so we come to the first week of Lent. A long journey with Jesus through 40 days of remembrance. That we haven't lost. That Easter is coming. That we know the future. But that we don't want to forget the present either. That this world is not your friend. You know, John says that. Friendship with the world is hatred for God. Well, then how am I supposed to live here? Well, because once you know who God is, you can serve the world and even love it with charity without idolizing it all the time. But again, that takes a little bit of head work and some heart work and some prayer. All of it, though, comes as a gift. All of it comes as a fact established. All of it is victory. And so today we see how Jesus brook nothing with that devil and told him where his place was and where he should go, he made it clear there was never a chance that he, as God and man, could fall, and that when he wants to die, he will die as he decides to die. And for that, again, we prepare to walk 40 days toward that good, good Friday. One last thing, I should bring it home with this. Remembering that, that same victory, that same victory, flee from me, devil, now will inhabit you body and soul, according to the great promise of his flesh and blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise.